so we'll um, begin this evening with the uh, kind of the tradition on these residential retreats, uh, almost a ritual when we open a residential retreat that we agree to land together in this container of practice and uh, kind of orient together towards how and what we're going to be doing through uh, exploring the refuges and the precepts together. And so I'll speak briefly about them. Many of you have heard this kind of talk many times and you can consider this also to be part of the ritual of settling into retreat. It is kind of a reminder for us of what we're doing here. For me, this this uh, question of refuge. The word itself, refuge, implies or indicates that there may be some kind of possibility of safety and that exploration or that question of what is safety or where do we typically think of finding safety is useful to reflect on and remind ourselves about what our purpose here is. It's not about finding safety in the ways that we typically, habitually perhaps, Even those of us who've been practicing for a long time, we find ourselves slipping back into the habits of our culture, the habits of relying on money and uh, things and um, acquiring and possessing in terms of where we find safety. You know, where, where where do we think we are going to find safety? Is it through having enough savings so that we can, um, survive any uh, loss of income or having a strong relationship so that we're not going to feel lonely. So there's all kinds of ways that we habitually think that we um, will have some safety in this world. And yet, when we even just briefly reflect on the typical ways our culture encourages us and points us towards happiness or where we might find safety. We see that those directions, those habitual ways of orienting towards safety are not very reliable. That because essentially of the nature of the world the unreliable, the impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of the world, the usual ways that our culture points us in the direction of safety are very inherently unreliable. They're not places where we can actually find a true safety or a true refuge, a true home, a true place for Um, security, freedom. The instability of the world, the unreliability of things in our lives, both small and large, from how we go through our individual days to the state of democracy. Not necessarily reliable. And this unreliability or the vulnerability that that points to 
is a truth. It's not a mistake. It's the nature. It's the nature of life. It's the nature of constructs. to fall apart, to not last. And our minds don't particularly like this truth of the vulnerability, of the unreliability of life, of the world. And so we're in reaction to it a lot, trying to control or fix or change, hold on to. If instead of being in resistance to this truth, these truths, of our vulnerability, really, instead of being resist, resisting that truth of vulnerability, if we could actually come into alignment with that, not fighting it, we might begin to recognize the possibility that this very non-conflict with this truth opens the door to a very different kind of peace, of safety, a very different kind of refuge, not one that is trying to be in opposition to the way things are, Paradoxically, as we kind of align with that truth, align with this understanding of the vulnerability, instead of instead of being uh, falling apart around that, the, there's the possibility of actually being at ease and at peace in a deeper way than we might have ever thought possible. And this is, this kind of refuge, this kind of refuge that is in alignment with the truth, that is not resistance to the truth, the the understanding the Buddha discovered, the understanding of coming into alignment with truth creates such an ease and peace in the heart that is a completely different kind of refuge than the one our cultures habitually point us to. And this is our practice, this is our work, this is what we are exploring, is essentially the whole of our practice could be, can we really find this refuge that the Buddha said was possible? Buddha, in his journey, discovered this possibility of freedom that he proclaimed as a refuge, as a place of safety, not in the traditional way or habitual way or conventional, I should say, in the conventional way that our culture thinks of safety, but in a different way. And this is uh, the traditional, um, the, the, the Buddha pointed to the possibility of complete freedom and complete refuge, the possibility that that is possible, a feeling of ease and peace in the midst of whatever is happening, not needing to fix or change or control what is happening, but aligning with what is happening that there's a, a, a possibility of freedom in there. And yet, just hearing about that, you know, hearing about that possibility, there's a lot, there's a lot to get us there. 
The Buddha discovered the refuge, discovered this possibility, and pointed us in the direction, saying, this is possible. I've discovered this, this freedom, this refuge, and you can discover it too. I can point the direction, but you have to do the work. You have to discover it for yourselves. And this is where the traditional uh, triple gem, the three refuges, comes in here. That we, um, the three refuges in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. In a way, they are. When I when I first heard about the refuges, I thought they were three different refuges, but. As I understand them more, it's more that they're interwoven strands of one refuge. They, they point back to each other. They link together. The Buddha, the refuge in the Buddha, we uh, appreciate, pay homage to, have some gratitude for that he discovered this path that he discovered this possibility of true refuge. There's a couple pieces around this. First of all, he discovered that there is a possible refuge. That itself is something that we can appreciate. He discovered that, there's this, that there is this possibility of freedom, and he also found a way to talk about it. Thank you that he found a way to talk about it. He talked about it in terms of the Dharma, the teachings, the second refuge. But back to the Buddha, again, he found this refuge and found a way to talk about it, but he also is, he was simply a human being. And uh, to me this, this has a power to it that we acknowledge and recognize that what the Buddha found and what he did is possible for us too. He was a human being. He freed his mind. We are human beings. It's possible for us to do that same thing. And he said that. He said, it is possible to free the mind. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to try. It's possible. And so this, in some ways, this refuge in the Buddha to me speaks to kind of a refuge in just the capacity that we have as human beings to wake up. And sometimes settling back and saying, yes, this is possible for human beings to do this. Human beings have done this. That can, to me, create some inspiration. I'm a human being. This is possible. It's possible partly because we have some help from the Buddha, and the Buddha kind of figured it out for himself, but we need some help, I think. And there's, you know, the, the second two, the third and the second and third refuges offer some of that help. The second refuge, the, the Dharma, the teachings the Buddha offered, the articulation of what he understood is one thing, that another thing that we can take refuge in. We can take refuge in the, that there is a path, that there is a direction, that's, that there is a, a way that we can engage and teachings that we can engage with. This is also very supportive for me, at least when I'm, especially in the middle of retreat, if I'm caught or struggling with something. Sometimes it's just as simple as reminding myself, my business right now is to just see, can I be aware of this? Can I know this is happening right now? This is the Dharma. This is the way the Dharma can meet this moment. How can the Dharma meet this moment? Again, sometimes these refuges can be a real support for us when we're struggling. Just kind of to reflect and remind ourselves, yes, I'm a human being. This human body, this human mind has a capacity to wake up. I've heard the teachings. 
I can engage in the teachings. I can breathe in, know I'm breathing in. I can breathe out, know that I'm breathing out. I can recognize that I'm aware. I can know what I'm aware of. Sometimes that can be a place to land when we're struggling. And the third refuge is support of the Sangha. The Sangha is the third traditional refuge. In some ways we could say that the, the first refuge, the refuge in the Buddha, we can take refuge in our capacity as human beings to wake up. The second refuge, the refuge in the Dharma, we can take refuge in both the, that there are teachings that point us in the direction of the understanding, the truth that the Buddha pointed to, and the truth itself can be a refuge. Recognizing this is, this is where the teachings are pointing us to, is understanding the truth, understanding the uh, really uncompromising nature of our experience as impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. And we can begin to, the, the, the whole of the practices that the Buddha offers are pointing us to be able to see that truth without fear, without resistance, without confusion, without wanting it to be some other way. And so this second truth, the truth of the Dharma, the second refuge, the refuge in the Dharma, we can see both as practices that lead us towards waking up, but also what we wake up to. And so we have the capacity for awakening, refuge in the Buddha. We have the Dharma, both what we wake up to and how we can wake up to it. And the third refuge, the refuge in the Sangha, is really our support because we do need support in this practice. We need the guidance of, of what the Buddha taught. We need the guidance of teachers, of Sangha, of fellow practitioners on the path. So the Sangha is our support for being able, part of our support for being able to open to these truths, impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. To me, these truths are not at all depressing. I mean, they are the way, it, they, the way they are the way it is. And so as we come into alignment with those truths, the heart begins to recognize, oh yeah, this is actually the way it is. Instead of trying to fight this, how can I be with this? And then as a part of this container of safety for our retreat together, Part of refuge, my sense of refuge in Sangha, is not only that we take support from others, but that we become support for others. We become this, the refuge. As we practice, as we engage in the practice, we are support so you're not only receiving support, you are offering support to everyone here and I think to the wider world. And one of the ways that this works is, you know, we think of refuge as, 
that word again, coming back to the word of refuge as a place of safety, one of the ways that we can become a place of safety, become a refuge for others, and we become an interwoven sangha supporting each other is through practicing with the precepts. Practice this, uh, the precepts I understand to be practice in relationship, practice in how we are together. These practices of non-harming, not as, I, I, I tend to feel for myself not holding them as moralistic thou shalt not kind of injunctions, but rather as very practical guidance that the Buddha offered around refraining from certain actions which lead to suffering in the world. And not only lead to suffering outside, but rebound on our own hearts and minds with suffering as well. And so very practically speaking, my sense is the Buddha said, if you want to open to freedom from suffering, engage in the world in ways that don't add suffering to the world. Engage in non-harming action, which means avoiding certain actions, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from harm through sexuality. And on this retreat, we'll commit to refraining from intentional sexual activity altogether during the two weeks, refraining from false speech, which will include noble silence on this retreat, and refraining from intoxicants which cloud our minds. So we agree to live in this container, this field together, each of us becoming a refuge, not only for each other, but for countless beings in the world. Each time we reflect on not harming, not killing bugs and insects. I mean, that's, uh, it, it, it comes to that for us often on retreat in terms of speaking about this precept sometimes, you know, it's like, this is, this is some of our practice. This is the edge for us often, you know, to, to recognize that urge to, to, you know, swat at a mosquito or kill a spider rather than trying to trap it and take it outside. And yet, you know, if we actually think, even at the most obvious levels around these precepts, like refraining from killing human beings and refraining from taking possessions from other people, and the obvious kinds of ways of holding these precepts, refraining from creating harm through sexuality in the most obvious ways. If every person on this planet agreed to follow these precepts in the most obvious way, refraining from killing other human beings, if every person on this planet decided to follow that single precept, it would be such a different world. And so appreciating your commitment to these precepts, appreciating that it is not a small thing what we are engaged in here. And not only is it refraining from creating harm in the world, but also this um, practice of engaging with the precepts creates conditions in our own minds for beautiful qualities of mind. It's 
that the, the, the suttas pair each of these precepts with a beautiful quality of mind that is cultivated at the same time that we refrain. And so we refrain from killing and this creates the conditions for cultivation of compassion. We refrain from taking what's not given. This cultivates the conditions for contentment. We refrain from creating harm through sexuality. This cultivates the conditions for integrity. We refrain from false speech. This creates the conditions for truthfulness. We refrain from intoxicants and this creates the conditions for clarity of mind. And so these, these precepts actually are not a small thing. At one point, Joseph Goldstein was talking about um, being in Burma and he got kind of stuck in his practice at one point, feeling like, um, you know, things just were kind of stuck or something. He went to his teacher and he described what was happening and Saito Upandita said to him, contemplate your sila, contemplate your ethics. And after a moment, first of thinking, what did I do wrong? Joseph said he realized that what Saito Upandita was pointing him to was to take delight in the fact that he'd been engaging in non-harming. This condition of the delight that can come from recognizing I've not been harming other beings. This can set the ground for the entire practice to unfold. There's one teaching where the Buddha starts from this ethical conduct and says, with when you've engaged in ethical conduct, it's a very natural thing for lack of remorse to arise because it's just a natural following that if you are engaging in ethical conduct, there will not be remorse. In one without remorse, it's very natural that delight will arise and the entire path unfolding from this simple practice and very powerful practice. And so we'll take the refuges and precepts together. Um, we'll do the refuges in Pali. I think most of you know them, so we'll just do them together. And um, if you don't know them, that's okay. You can just kind of be in the field of it. Um, and then for the precepts, we'll take them together in English. And today we'll just take the five precepts together. And then in a few days, if some of you are interested in taking the eight precepts, we'll talk about that and um, I'll offer the eight precepts. So let's chant the refuges together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddhang saranangachami, Dhammang saranangachami, Sangang saranangachami, Dutiampi Buddhang saranangachami, Dutiampi Dhammang saranangachami, Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami Tatiampi Budang Saranangachami Tatiampi Damang Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings.
I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from intentional sexual activity. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So thank you for taking the refuges and the precepts together. And tonight, I want this evening to be relatively short so that we'll be all get a good night of rest. It's often a a lot of work to get to retreat. So we'll keep this evening relatively short. So I just like to talk a little bit about the practice that we'll be doing together. This um retreat is titled Mindfulness of Mind. Um, and yet, you know, that this is this is partly partly a partly a pointing to what the direction of this practice moves. Um, and yet, as Sayadaw Gutejaniya often says, he doesn't just teach mindfulness of mind. We're, we're studying the entirety of our human experience, all four foundations of mindfulness. And yet the, um, the practice of becoming aware of the mind and becoming aware of how we are relating to experience, you know, really if we start to look at where suffering happens. It's not in the actual objective experience of this thing or that thing happening or this sensation or that sensation. Our suffering happens in our relationship to experience and that relationship is mental. And so our struggles, the the ways that we struggle come about through how our minds are engaging in the world with the world and so big and and also how we are uh, how the mind engages is it's the mind that meditates <laughs> the mind is is what does the work of meditation and so we uh, we we need to really understand our minds not only in terms of how they engage in habitually in the world but how they they engage in the practice and so we spend quite a bit of t- time looking at and beginning to get familiar with watching our minds. Our experience consists of how our minds are, the, 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 the knowing of experience and how we are relating to experience and something that we are aware of. Some language that I'll use a lot probably during this week is, you know, what, what we are noticing, the experiences in the world. Sometimes I'll use the word object for that. What is the object of experience? What are we noticing? What's the experience? This might consist of sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, or thoughts, or emotions, or moods. So that's a big part of what we get familiar with. We get familiar with the input or the objects of experience. And then all experience, there's both, there's something that we know, and then there's the mind that knows it. And that mind that knows it, one of the key things of the mind that knows it is just this simple function of awareness. The mind is aware. And this is a big part of beginning to understand and explore the mind. 
that we begin to recognize and know what it means, how it feels, what the experience of being aware is. I'll talk about this a lot in the, in the weeks. In this moment right now, are you aware? If you're sitting here listening to me, not asleep, not spaced out, the answer is yes. You do know that you're aware. You may not know how you know you're aware quite yet. At least for me, that took some time to begin to understand. Recognizing more directly the experience of awareness itself. And so this is a piece of what we explore. Am I aware? Am I aware? This is beginning to get familiar with the mind side of our experience. Just simply beginning to recognize, yes, I am aware. Awareness is is present. And then another aspect of the mind that we begin to explore and investigate is as we are exploring there's something that we know some object some experience and we are aware of it often it's not as simple as oh yes I'm aware of that painful experience in my knee instead there's often some kind of a layer or a filter in the mind Maybe we could say kind of between the object and the knowing. A layer of aversion, a layer of wanting, a layer of confusion perhaps, a layer of something that has a relationship to that experience. We like something, we don't like something, we want to get rid of something, we want to fix something or change something, we're angry about something, we're frustrated about something we're confused about something, we're bored. When we are exploring, these are all things that happen in our mind. And sometimes these things that that are happening in our mind are kind of behind the radar. We're not so conscious of them. And in that we can say that they're influencing how we're paying attention. So we're not so aware that we are um, disliking some experience. There's aversion in the mind. And that very aversion is kind of like creating a contraction or a pressure or a pushing around the experience. A tension, a tightness there. So part of this exploration of mindfulness of mind is checking in and how am I in relationship to what is happening? So there's this thing happening. Do I want something to happen? Do I want something to stop happening? So checking in, how are you? What is the relationship? What is the attitude? Is another way of languaging it. What's the attitude in the mind? Now in this checking of the attitude, we are aware we are aware of something some object of experience some sight sound smell taste touch or maybe a thought or feeling and then checking our relationship to it essentially we're we're exploring and investigating what is flavoring or filtering or coloring how we are paying attention what is flavoring the awareness and if we can begin to recognize those flavors are happening and and see for instance oh yeah that thing's happening and i don't like it that not liking then instead of flavoring the awareness we could say instead of being in between what we're paying attention to and the awareness become something else we can be aware of so that not liking, instead of kind of being in the background and informing how we are aware of something, it just goes right into the foreground and we can know it. Oh yeah, what's going on? Is that thing's happening and I don't like it? And can you be aware of that? So 
we will talk about this a lot. This is, this is a big part of the practice. The practice itself is so simple. There's not a lot of instructions, uh, actual instructions in this particular practice. There's some simple encouragements. Relax is a big one. Relax, relax, relax. Because what we are cultivating essentially is this, uh, we're we're creating a container. Let's say we're creating a container in which we can begin to receive the entirety of our human experience. So we're creating this container of receptive awareness that can open to the the fullness of everything that happens. And that uh, that awareness that can receive everything, that can meet the world, that awareness, if it is relaxed, we are cultivating a relaxed attention, a relaxed awareness, that um, that allows us to be much less reactive to what's happening in our experience. And so cultivating this container of a relaxed attention, one of the most helpful ways to do that, to start, is to attend to relaxation. We'll start there. We'll do a guided meditation in a few minutes and we'll start there. And you can, you're welcome to come back to this over and over. It is one of the most helpful ways to create the container of an awareness that is relaxed to be aware of relaxing. So it's very supportive to begin there. This container of relax, relaxation, using relaxation was something that I didn't really appreciate until I um, met Sayadaw Utejaniya. He emphasized relaxation more than any other teacher that I had met. And it was so helpful for me. And I could see just how much tension I had brought to the way I paid attention. Oh, I'm supposed to stay with the breath. I'm supposed to be with this thing. Let me hold on to it. As opposed to cultivating container of relaxed attention, which can receive the breath or receive sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch. And so relaxation is a huge support for our practice. And as we relax, as the body relaxes, one of the other great things about relaxation is as the body relaxes, it supports the mind to relax. And the mind relaxing, when the mind relaxes, it is kind of naturally aware. We don't actually have to work too hard to be aware when the mind is relaxed and not like moving into thoughts of past and future and kind of grabbing onto things. As the mind relaxes, it's very naturally just landing here in the present moment. And so we can support the relaxed mind by relaxing the body. And as the mind relaxes, then we can begin to to recognize, oh, I'm aware. I'm not having to work very hard to be aware. Here it is. Aware. And then what is obvious? And this is kind of the, the broad brush of the tools of this particular practice. Relax. Recognize that you're aware and receive what's obvious. No need to direct the attention, to pick a particular object to pay attention to. As you relax, as your mind relaxes, as your body and mind relaxes, and there is a sense, yes, I'm aware. S- that awareness is already aware of something. What is that? What is obvious? 
Right now, in this moment, are you aware? And what, what is obvious? Sometimes it's not so clear what awareness is aware of. Because sometimes our awareness is aware of what we could say broader kind of experience that we don't have a word for or a name for. We're used to being able to articulate and identify, oh yes, I'm aware of this body sensation or I'm aware of this sight or this sound. But I'm aware of kind of the state of sitting here in this room, taking in sights and sounds in a very broad way. We don't really have a name for that. And yet here we are, receiving experience. Sometimes it's very obvious what attention is paying attention to. Sometimes it's like, no question. You're sitting here and a motorcycle goes by and yes, hearing is happening. I know that hearing is what, that's the object. Sometimes it's very clear that Body sensations are obvious. Sometimes the attention kind of shifts between different experiences, moves from one thing to the other. And sometimes that's kind of more vague or more undefined what we're aware of. If you don't have a clear sense of what you're aware of, I'm gonna offer you two options. One, first of all, come back and just kind of recognize, yep, I'm aware. That's okay. I know that I'm aware. The second option is just pick something obvious in your experience, something that is the most obvious thing, like the sensation of your feet or the sensation of your hands or your hips against the chair or cushion or maybe a breath. Just pick something obvious in this moment. but you do not have to hold on to that to say, I'm going to stay with this. But in this moment, there you are, you, you know that. And then we, we perhaps explore this possibility of following the attention. And as you notice that you're with this one experience, at some point you'll notice that the attention shifts to a sound, somebody's moved, and then the attention shifts to someplace else in the body because that's a sensation there has become strong. And then the attention shifts to hearing again. And then the attention shifts to a breath. And kind of having the sense of following the attention. Following the attention. Not needing to control where the attention goes. So relaxing, <coughs> recognizing awareness, receiving what's obvious. And then from time to time checking in, how am I in relationship? This moving in to check the mind in relationship to experience. Very occasionally perhaps consciously asking that question, what's the attitude? What's the attitude? What's the relationship with experience? And so this, in a nutshell, are the instructions that we'll be working with. Relax, recognize, are you aware? Receive what's obvious. And then check in from time to time about the attitude or relationship to experience. Not a lot of technique. And yet, it includes or encompasses some understandings, which I'll talk more about tomorrow, but it en encompasses the, the way the instructions are framed includes 
It encompasses a perspective on how to meet experience that takes us in the direction of understanding these truths that I was talking about earlier, impermanent, unreliable, to be able to meet those truths without resisting, fighting, pushing away. Some of the the ways that works is instead of orienting to experience, I mean, what we're doing here is just really simple. It's like, is awareness present? What's being received? What's the relationship? We're orienting towards our experience, not in terms of I or me or mine. Instead, we're orienting towards kind of the impersonal nature of experience, the human experience. Human beings are aware. Human beings experience sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. Human beings have attitudes that influence how we relate. Can we begin to see our experience from this perspective of what is the human experience? Taking that perspective on what's happening in our experience is such a different approach than our enculturated approach of it's about me, it's about I, it's about what I need to do, who I need to talk to, how I need to fix things, how I need to engage. Instead, we're stepping back from that and exploring, and what is this experience? Oh, this is what it's like for a human being to feel frustrated. Oh, this is what it's like for a human being to feel confused. This is what it's like for a human being to feel love, compassion, joy. That perspective shift is crucial. It's the, the, the view, right view, view of how we are paying attention that guides us towards the understandings that free the mind. And so while the um, instructions are pretty simple, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> so I, I do offer quite a bit of suggestions and guidance for things. In particular, I point to things you can see in your experience, things that can be recognized, things that might not be so obvious, but can be known, and then seeing them from a particular perspective can be very freeing. So let's just take a few moments to, we'll just take 10, 15 minutes to settle in with this form. I'll do a guided, just brief guided meditation. And then we'll have an early, an early evening. And so finding a posture that feels comfortable where you can both cultivate relaxation and alertness. These two are not opposites. We can be both relaxed and alert. And we'll start with a little bit of relaxation of body, just checking in, seeing if there can be relaxation of the head and face. Neck and shoulders. Relaxing the arms, the hands. 
seeing if there can be a softening of the muscles of the chest and upper back. Relaxing stomach, abdomen, middle and lower back. And if you're sleepy, if you're finding you're drifting, it's fine to have your eyes open during this relaxation. There's nothing special about having the eyes closed here. And so continuing to relax your stomach and abdomen, middle and lower back, hips, legs, knees, ankles, feet. And I also personally have found it really useful once I've relaxed the kind of muscles, the outer layers of the body, to explore the possibility of whether there might be some relaxation possible inside the body, in the core of the body. And so just check in and see Maybe the inside of the throat can relax. Maybe the heart can relax. Maybe the stomach, the intestines can relax. And then exploring the possibility of maybe the mind can relax. An image Gill sometimes uses that's evocative of this is as if the brain were a muscle. See if you can relax your brain. And as the body and mind relax, can you recognize, are you aware? In the simplest of ways, there's no need to try to turn back and look at awareness or do anything with it. Are you aware? Just the simple acknowledgement or recognition of that. Yes, I'm aware. I know I'm aware. That will be supportive. Just simply recognizing, are you aware? And what is obvious? What is awareness aware of? Maybe sounds, maybe body sensations, sounds again, maybe a breath, maybe sounds again. Maybe moods or feelings. Exploring the possibility of receiving experience. Settling back. Letting experience come to you. What is the experience that wants to show up for you in this moment? 
resting and receiving. Kind of like let yourself be out of the driver's seat for a while. (coughs) Your human system, your human organism actually knows how to take care of itself pretty well. And you can rest and let this human being receive experience. And how are you in relationship to experience? What's the attitude? Do you want something to happen? Do you want something to stop happening? Maybe there's confusion. Or maybe there's a sense, no problem, things are okay. That too is an attitude. Oh, it's okay, no problem. We could call that right attitude, wise attitude, helpful attitude. If you notice any kind of attitude, our practice is Recognizing that that too can be something we can know. Instead of being an attitude behind the scenes, it becomes an object or an experience that we just can recognize. The mind will wander, of course. As soon as you notice, (coughs) as soon as you notice that there had been wandering, that moment we can turn around and actually recognize mindfulness is back instead of orienting around, I've been lost. Oh, mindfulness is back. Aware again. Aware again. And what is obvious with that? There's nothing else to come back to there. You are aware already what's obvious. If tension has crept in while the mind is wandering, it can be really helpful to take some time to orient around relaxing again attend to relaxation as a support for that container of relaxed attention. Are you aware?
what's obvious. <laughs>